Well, the famous 18th century philosopher, David Hume, once described the problem of evil as the rock of atheism. What did he mean? He meant the fact people suffer proves that there is no God. And his logic went something like this. If, as the Bible says, God is all-powerful, that is, he can do anything he wants, and if, as the Bible says, God is all-loving, then he would never allow people to experience evil and suffering. And yet they do, therefore there is no God. Do you get his logic? Not that this argument remained in the 18th century. And uh, those of you who have seen the recent Batman versus Superman movie would have heard Lex Luthor make the same claim. Do you remember what he said? No man in the sky intervened when I was a boy to deliver me from daddy's fist and abominations. I figured out way back, if God is all-powerful, he cannot be all-good. And if he is all-good, then he cannot be all-powerful. And maybe you even know people who reject God on the basis of this argument. So what are we to do with this so-called problem of evil? Because let's face it, there are lots and lots of people suffering in our world, aren't there? Even in this last week, a massive earthquake in Ecuador has killed over 600 people, with many more still missing, and over 12,000 people injured, with untold damage to property. Meanwhile, large swathes of the earth are ravaged by severe drought. Pollution kills millions of people each year as they breathe filthy air and drink contaminated water. There are terrible diseases like like HIV and tuberculosis and, and, and the Zika virus. There are bushfires and floods and landslides and avalanches and hurricanes and, and tsunamis, all causing terrible suffering and all from the hand of our sovereign God. And so we ask, why does God ordain such suffering? Well, the fact is, we can never fully understand the answer to that question. At least not this side of heaven, and and there's even a whole book of the Bible dedicated to making that very point, uh, the, the book of Job. But whilst that's true, there certainly are other parts of the Bible that give us at least part of the answer as is the case in today's passage. Today we come to Revelation chapters 8 and 9. If you don't already have a Bible open in front of you, can I encourage you to grab one now? Turn with me to Revelation chapter 8. It's page 871 of the small print, 1921 of the large print Bibles. And let me quickly remind you of where we're up to. Let me recap. You'll remember that Revelation is a letter originally written to seven first-century churches. Churches that had been largely struggling on account of both external and internal threats. There was persecution coming from outside, and then there was the threat of compromised people within the church, uh, people caught up in idolatry and immorality and false teaching. And so for the sake of these struggling churches along with all those who have ears to hear, God gave the Apostle John a set of amazing visions. 
in which the curtains of heaven's throne room were thrown open, enabling John to look in and see reality from God's perspective. And in his vision, John saw God on the heavenly throne. In his hand was a scroll with seven seals, a scroll which, as it's opened, sets in motion the the wheels of God's great plan for the universe, His, his plan to deliver his people and make all things right once and for all. But there was a problem, and no one worthy was found to open the seals. But then Jesus, the sacrificial lamb who had been slain, but then risen and and ascended to heaven. He stepped forward and took the scroll and started opening the seven seals. As the first five seals were opened, terrible things happened on earth. War, violence, hunger, injustice, death. A time of great tribulation. All culminating with the sixth seal, which brought an end to world history. Uh, The final judgment, the the great day of God's wrath. And so now, as we come to the opening of the seventh seal in our passage today, we're left wondering, what on earth could happen now? So what does happen when the seventh seal is opened? Well, silence happens. Heaven falls silent for about half an hour. And during this time, we're told that seven angels are handed seven trumpets. And that meanwhile, another angel burns incense on the heavenly altar, the smoke of which symbolises the prayers of God's people, which are now coming before him. And I think that's probably the point of the silence here. That heaven falls silent so that the prayers of the saints can be heard which is quite extraordinary when you think about it, to think that that even in all the the worship and commotion and activity of heaven, as God directs the affairs of the cosmos, uh, that he stops to listen to the prayers of his children, including your prayers and mine, and including the prayers of his children in those seven struggling churches who are no doubt crying out, Lord, Oh, save us from all of this struggle. Lord, deliver us. And it's in response to these prayers that the silence is broken. As the angel fills his his golden incense pot with fire and hurls it at the earth, resulting in lightning and, and thunder and earthquake. And with that, the seven angels raise their trumpets to their lips. They take a deep breath... And they prepare to blow. You read with me from Revelation chapter 8 verse 1. Chapter 8 verse 1. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Another angel had a golden censer, came and stood at the altar, and was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints. On the golden altar before the throne, the smoke of the incense together with the prayers of the saints went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, 
filled it with fire from the altar and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning and an earthquake. Then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. It's an extraordinary scene, isn't it? But but notice that, that the opening of the seventh seal here now launches us into what will be seven trumpet blasts. Trumpet blasts meant to announce and warn that judgment is coming on the earth. But when you think about that, it's rather unexpected, isn't it? Because remember, the the sixth seal brought an end of world history. The final judgment. So why blow trumpets now in order to warn people that, that more judgment is coming on the earth? I mean, surely it's too late for that. Well, to answer this question, I think we first need to understand something of the the broader structure of this book of Revelation. Because here in the middle of Revelation, there are three important sections. There are the seven seals, which we've already looked at. There are the seven trumpets, which we'll look at today. And then there are the seven bowls, which we'll look at in a few weeks' time. And what some people do as they read Revelation is they line up these three series of visions, one after the other, and take them as representing a a, a timeline of world history, putting each vision in chronological order, such that they, they give us a timetable by which we can determine where we are in the scheme of history, and so determine how long until Christ's return. So, for example, some people look at the the weird armoured grasshoppers of trumpet number five, which we'll see later today, and interpret them as as things like the Apache helicopters of our modern era. And and so conclude that, well, we we must be up to trumpet number five in this this timeline of world history. Does that make sense? But I don't think that's the way we're meant to read Revelation not least because Apache helicopters would have made absolutely no sense to the first century Christians for for whom Revelation was originally written, for their benefit. Now, what we need to do is keep in mind that whilst John receives visions in a certain order, that doesn't mean that they represent events that then take place in that same order. Instead, when we look at the visions of the the seals and and trumpets and bowls, we see that there's actually a general general pattern that emerges. Each series describing God's judgment on the earth and then culminating in the end of world history, the, the final judgment, the end. And so a better way to understand these three series of visions is as visions covering the the same period of history. That is, the period from the ascension of Jesus uh, through to his return. Does that make sense? And so as the seventh seal is opened here, it doesn't launch us forward into the trumpets, but rather backwards as we now cover the same period of history again. And then that'll happen again with the bowls. So it's all all a bit like a video replay 
Okay? You, you know when, when you're watching the football on TV and, and Para goes in for a try, okay? And then, then you get a replay of the exact same action but, but from a different angle. And then you get another replay of the exact same action from yet another angle. Could watch that all day. Well, it's just like that here in the middle of Revelation with the seals and the trumpets and the bowls. Except here it's dreadful stuff being described, isn't it? So I guess it's a little bit more like watching video replays of the Manly Sea Eagles going in for a try or something like that. Is that helpful? It was for me. Well, okay, let's get back to Revelation chapter 8. And remember, we've seen, we've just seen heaven fall silent as God has listened to the prayers of his people. And he's responded by, by bringing judgment on the earth. And now the seven angels are about to sound their trumpets to warn people that these judgments are now upon them. Well, when the first angel blows his trumpet, it results in a third of the earth, the, the land, being spoiled, destroyed. When the second angel blows his trumpet, a third of the oceans are spoiled. When the third angel blows his trumpet, a third of all the fresh water is spoiled. And when the fourth angel blows his trumpet, a third of the sky is spoiled. So here in the first four trumpet blasts, it's the land, the sea, the fresh water and the sky that are all spoiled. That is, all the natural components of the human environment are spoiled, destroyed, ruined as part of God's judgment. And it's terrible. But then after the fourth trumpet is sounded, an eagle makes the dreadful announcement that, that if you think this is bad, well, you ain't seen nothing yet. Here, read with me from verse 7. Verse 7. The first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down upon the earth. A third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain, all ablaze, was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned into blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded his trumpet, and a great star, blazing like a torch, fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters turned bitter, and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. The fourth angel sounded his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon and a third of the stars. So the third of them turned dark. A third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. As I watched... I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blasts about to be sounded by the other three angels. And so here we see a third of the earth's ecosystem ruined as part of God's judgment. Why a third? Well, I, I don't think it's meant to be taken literally, but, but symbolically. You know, the third is a lot, isn't it? But, but it's not total destruction. Uh, not yet. In other words, the end is yet to come. And God is still giving people time to respond. 
But perhaps you also noticed here that these trumpet blasts are filled with imagery from one particular story in the Old Testament. Can, can you tell me what it is? Did anybody pick up on it? That's right. Yes, yes, good. Yeah, the ten plagues of Egypt. So what have we got? We've got hail. Uh, we've got water turning into blood. We've got undrinkable water. We've got darkness. And see, these, these visions are drawing from the plagues of Egypt, albeit presenting them on a much more cataclysmic scale. And I'm sure this Old Testament reference is significant. Because remember, why did God bring the plagues on Egypt? Well, it was because he, he heard the cries of his people. The, the prayers of his people crying out to be delivered from the hands of Pharaoh. Cries for God to fulfill his plan and bring them into the promised land. Kind of reminiscent of the prayers of the saints here in Revelation, don't you think? And back then, God sent plague after plague on Egypt to give hope to his suffering people and, and to warn the Egyptians that they must not stand in his way, but accept him. And so we think about the environmental disasters of our day. And these trumpet blasts help us to, to see that they, are, they actually form part of God's judgment on this sinful world. The earthquakes, the bushfires, the pollution, the drought, the disease. All part of God's judgment. Not his final judgment, but all leading up to his final judgment. And meant as a warning that people should no longer go on rejecting God, but accept him. It's judgment on unbelievers. But of course, as we Christians live in this world, we get caught up in it all too, don't we? But if you think this is bad, then as the eagle said, you ain't seen nothing yet. Because whilst the first four trumpet blasts are directed at the natural environment, the final trumpet blasts are directed at people personally. When the fifth angel sounds his trumpet, John sees a star which has fallen to earth, which at God's command opens the door to the abyss. Uh, what is the abyss? Well, it seems to be the place where, where demons are locked up. Uh, you might remember when Jesus met the man possessed by many demons in Luke chapter 8, that they, they begged him uh, not to be sent into the abyss. They begged him to, to send them into, rather into a herd of pigs nearby. Do you remember? And so it seems the, the abyss is, is some kind of lockup for evil spirits. And now here in the fifth trumpet, the abyss is opened and, and smoke billows out. And, and out of the smoke comes a great swarm of, of weird locusts. They're not normal locusts, but pre presumably some kind of demonic locusts coming out of the abyss. And unlike the locusts in the plagues of Egypt, these ones don't harm the earth, but rather people, people themselves. Not Christians, mind you, but unbelievers. Not that they're allowed to kill them, but only to torment them terribly. In fact, torment them to the point these people will wish they were dead just to get some relief. But death won't come. Just torture, torture 
for five months. Why five months? Well, well, again, it shows us this judgment is limited. As bad as it is, it's still not the final judgment. There is still time to repent. Here, read with me from chapter 9, verse 1. Chapter 9, verse 1. The fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. When he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss. And out of the smoke, locusts came down upon the earth and were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads, that is, unbelievers. They were not given power to kill them but only to torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes a man. During those days, man will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. The locusts looked like horses prepared for battle. On their heads, they, they wore something like crowns of gold and their faces resembled human faces. Their, their hair was like women's hair and their, their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates, like, like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the thundering of many horses and, and chariots rushing into battle. They had tails and, and stings like scorpions, and in their tails they had power to torment people for five months. They had as king over them the angel of the abyss, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek, Apollyon, both names simply meaning destroyer. The first woe is past, two other woes are yet to come. And so what do you think? Apache helicopters? I don't think so. But, but rather, it seems to me to, to be a picture of evil spirits bringing misery upon unbelievers, seeking to destroy their lives. So how do these evil spirits torture unbelievers? Well, we're not told, are we? And so, of course, we, we need to be careful as we, as we try to answer. But, but perhaps, it, perhaps it's through some kind of physical or, or, or mental affliction that they bring. And, I mean, we certainly see lots of cases of that in the New Testament, don't we? Um, blind people and mute people and uh, people out of their minds, all on account of evil spirits, uh, of course, not that we should see every person that has some kind of physical or mental affliction as being demon-possessed. Remember, Jesus healed lots and lots of sick people without always feeling the need to cast out demons. And, of course, there are lots of Christians who get sick too, aren't there? And, and, and yet we're specifically told here that these locusts aren't allowed to harm Christians. So, again, it can't be that all sick people we come across are being tortured by demons. But that's not to say that none are. But then again, maybe it's uh, that these evil spirits afflict people at a, at a spiritual level. You know, enticing people to sin and, and ruining their lives that way. Uh, I'm sure you'd agree that much of the heartache in our world today is on account of sin. Or, or maybe it's as these demons convince people that there is no cure to their sin. And so filling them with a sense of, of despair and, 
and hopelessness. Well, I know we're, in, we're operating in the world of speculation here, but, but, but all these are the possibilities. But what we know for sure is that these locusts bring great harm into the lives of, of many unbelievers. But then in John's vision, uh, the sixth trumpet is sounded. And with it, God's command to release the four angels bound at the Euphrates River in order that they might kill a third of mankind. Not everyone, but certainly lots of people. And these four angels then carry out their mission of death with the help of a a great army of horsemen uh, riding on strange, ferocious horses. What kind of army is this? Well, uh, each horse is described as having a tail like a snake. I wonder what biblical image pops into your mind when you think of a snake. Uh, Satan, perhaps? In fact, later in Revelation, Satan will be described as that ancient serpent. So what I think we might have here is is another demonic army. Though, Though this time, the evil spirits are allowed to kill unbelievers. But you know, it's even worse than that. Because we're told that these demonic horses kill by way of their mouths. Mouths which breathe fire and smoke and sulphur. A fire, smoke and sulphur in Revelation being a symbol of hell. And so you see, by killing unbelievers, this, this demonic army is in fact uh, sealing their fate, securing their eternal punishment as these these people die unforgiven, uh, without Christ, without hope. And as all these people die, these hopeless deaths, how do the surviving unbelievers respond? Well, sadly, they remain unrepentant, continuing in their sin and idolatry. Here, read with me these final verses from chapter 9, verse 13. Chapter 9, verse 13. The sixth angel sounded his trumpet, and I heard a voice coming from the horns of the golden altar that is before God. It said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of the mounted troops was 200 million. I heard their number. See, another great unstoppable army. The horses and riders I saw in my vision looked like this. Their breastplates were were fiery red, dark blue and yellow as sulfur. The heads of the horses resembled the heads of lions. and Out of their mouths came fire, smoke and sulfur. A third of mankind was killed by the three plagues of fire, smoke and sulphur that came out of their mouths. And the power of the horses was in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails were like snakes, having heads with which to inflict injury. The rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshipping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone and wood, Idols that cannot see or hear or walk. 
nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. Well, this is an awful plague, isn't it? Uh, Definitely uh, the worst so far. Uh, Unrepentant, unforgiven, unbelievers, dying and and going to hell without hope, without a saviour. Friends, I wonder if you realise that, that on this day, uh, the 24th of April 2016, I wonder if you realise that on this day, 142,000 people will die. That's a lot of people, isn't it? 142,000. Most of whom will die a hopeless death. We see it, don't we, in the hopelessness of a, a non-Christian funeral? where the only hope offered is, is in, in meaningless platitudes of, of dead loved ones some, somehow now living on in our memories, or as, as a sunbeam, some other such thing. That's hopeless. I don't want just a memory of my loved ones. I want my loved ones. And though 142,000 people will die today, not everyone will die today because the end has not yet come. And for unbelievers who don't die, all this hopeless death around them ought to remind them that their own hopeless death is coming to. And it ought to drive them to God finding eternal life and eternal hope in his son. Yet sadly, most unbelievers won't heed this warning today, but will rather go on looking for solace in their idols, their idols of of alcohol, drugs, money, work, sport, sex, whatever. Hardening their hearts against God, just as Pharaoh did through the plagues of Egypt. And with that, we come to the end of today's passage. As for the seventh and and final trumpet, well, I'm afraid we're going to have to wait a couple more weeks to find out what happens there. It kind of builds the suspense a little, doesn't it? But today we've seen, haven't we, that, that... then in this period from Jesus' ascension until his return, God's judgment is on the earth. It's not the final judgment, but a prelude to the final judgment. And one that's meant to produce a response. And so how should we respond to what we've heard today? Well, I guess that depends on who you are, doesn't it? If you're a Christian here today, then I I think, as as disturbing as this passage is, that it ought to fill you with hope and with a a resolve to stick with Jesus, no matter what. It fills us with hope because in this passage we see God bringing about his great plan to deliver us from the struggles of this world and into the, the ultimate promised land of the new heavens and earth. In the meantime, we see that we have his seal, his spiritual protection, 
And so the knowledge that no matter what happens in this world, world we have his guarantee, of, we have the guarantee of our place in heaven. And in this passage, we all, it also gives us the, the resolve to stick with Jesus, no matter what, doesn't it? And the last thing we want to do is, is end up like those compromises in those seven first century churches, caught up in their, their idolatry and their immorality and their, their false teaching. No. Instead, we want to stick with Jesus, trusting in him, obeying him, living for him as our number one priority. Knowing that that's the only way for us to avoid the terrible destruction of God's wrath that is coming. But if you're not a Christian, then I think this passage ought to produce in you a different response. I think it ought to move you to get right with God today. See, friend, people like, like David Hume and Lex Luthor and others like them, they see all the bad stuff happening in this world and they conclude that there, if there's a God who does things like that, then they want nothing to do with him. But they miss the point. They miss the point that God owes us nothing And he could have wiped us sinners out a long time ago. But in his grace and mercy and patience, yes, in his love, God is sounding his trumpets as a warning that his final judgment is coming, that you might turn to him today and be saved. In the days of... uh, Jesus, there there was a terrible disaster when the tower in Jerusalem collapsed and killed 18 people. At that time, Jesus asked his audience, he asked, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? He went on to say, I tell you no. But unless you repent you too will all perish. See, according to Jesus, the suffering in our world ought to turn us not away from God in unbelief, but rather toward him in repentance and faith. Friend, if you have not already oh, please find forgiveness and hope in Jesus Christ today. Come out from under God's terrible wrath by fleeing to Jesus in repentance and faith. And if you're unsure how to do that, then please, please ask me after the service. I would love to talk with you. But friend, please note, the time is limited. Because, friend, the great hurricane of God's wrath, it is coming. And as we look at the world around us, we see that, in fact, the dark clouds have already gathered. 
There's lightning flashing in the sky. There's rumbling in the distance. And the first drops of rain have already begun to fall. Let's pray. Oh Lord, what a a dreadful thing it is to fall into the hands of the living God. And uh, we are aware that we deserve nothing more than your wrath. And so we want to thank you right now for sending Jesus as our saviour. And we want to thank you uh, that you are continuing to work out your great plan to deliver us, your people, and, and lead us into the, the ultimate promised land. And Lord, we pray that each of us here today would stick with Jesus to the very end, no, no matter what. That not one of us would, would compromise uh, with the idolatry or, or immorality or false teaching of the culture around us. And Father, we pray for anyone here today that has yet to put their trust in Jesus. Oh, Father, may this be the day of their salvation. Lord, please hear our prayers as they rise before you now. In Jesus' name.